So, uh, let's go ahead and begin with a prayer this evening. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this evening and for this chance to be together. We thank you for this book and for the great wisdom uh, that it gives us that is so deeply rooted in your word. Lord, we pray that you would help us as we come tonight with many different things on our minds to put aside those things and pray that you would open our hearts through your Holy Spirit that we might learn whatever things of your kingdom you would desire for us to learn this night. We thank you for this time and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have a special music treat, which maybe you'll know what this is. Any guesses? Mark Fenley, you should know what this is. Not to call you out. <laughs> nope. It is something they sang at the coronation. All right, so it is something that was sung at the coronation, and that something was the hymn, Veni Creator Spiritus, and some of the choristers singing that were students at the Methodist College in Belfast, where Mark Fenley was a student back in the day. Uh, but one of the things that was really cool, if you watched the coronation, um, they sang that, which is it's an ancient prayer set to music. It's from the 8th century, um, basically begging for the Holy Spirit to come um, whenever there is going to be an anointing. It's sung at ordinations. Uh, it was sung at my ordination. It's sung at the ordination of bishops. It's sung at the anointing of the king and queen of England as well. But they sang it in English, Irish, Welsh, and Scottish, I think, something like that. Uh, so it was quite impressive. But we'll talk more about that later. Let's join and sing our verse together. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge, Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. And that is going to be especially relevant in the chapter tonight. So, 
A few words about how to approach this class. Even though we're ending, we still have people that are just now joining us, uh, some of them online. And so there are a couple of ways to do this. You can be on the beach. Um, some people have lasted on the beach all the way through this class. They haven't read a single word all year long. And that's great. That's great. If that is what floats your boat, we're glad you're here. Or you can snorkel if you like, really like this chapter. You can read those handouts over there um, and go deep with the music. Uh, or not. If you are scuba diving, then there are all sorts of resources that you can follow. However you want to do that is great. If you're not on our class email list, uh, please do sign up if you're here in person, or if you're online, Google St. Philip's Church Charleston, and that will get you to our website, and you can message me, and I'll get you added. So uh, we continue to have people all over the place. We just had somebody new from Scotland, so I have no idea how people find us, but we're delighted that they do. So uh, you will remember, if you were here last week, that chapter 12 starts off with this glorious scene of the rippling light and the shadows and the sense that something amazing is going to happen. And Lewis, the narrator, begins to see that there's some kind of procession and there's a great lady and he thinks, oh, oh, maybe, maybe it's the Virgin Mary. And he gets ready to ask George MacDonald, is it, is it? And he's like, no. He's like, and Lewis is like, well, who is it? And he tells Lewis that it is this woman who he's never heard of from Golders Green. And Golders Green is maybe like the British equivalent of Ames, Iowa. It is ordinariness defined. And so this woman, though, even though she was a nobody in the eyes of the world, in heaven she has great fame and great repute because of the beauty of her soul and the way that she lived her life loving others and seeking after Jesus. So that's the context for the beginning. And we talked last time, and we're going to run through this really fast, about how honor and glory in heaven are utterly different than they are on this earth. And that honor and glory in heaven are all about your inner self and choosing the things of God versus the things that this world tends to celebrate. It has nothing to do with having achieved high office or written a famous book or being rich. It is all about the inward journey of your soul. Um, second thing is the spiritual body and this whole idea that in heaven, heaven in the Christian understanding is not a disembodied, floaty kind of existence. It's not Casper the friendly ghost. And y'all who are young don't know who that is, but you can look it up. Uh, so it's a, an embodied reality where we have a new and beautiful spiritual body that is part of our resurrection life destiny. And then there's more in this whole idea about earthly fame and this whole idea about Sarah Smith of Golders Green was not someone that anybody on earth had ever heard of. But in heaven, great was her reward. Because remember, all that passage in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, he, your father who sees in secret, will reward you. All of those things about do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, 
Do not practice your righteousness before men. Then this whole idea of angels. So there are all of these angels that are attending her, uh, and it's a beautiful scene, and uh, he is quoting from Milton. You might remember Lewis has a little bit of an obsession with John Milton and his works, um, which I would commend to you if you've never read any Milton. This is quoted from Comus, don't read that. Uh, but do read Paradise Lost, uh, really very much worth your time. Um, then this whole idea of relationships and love in heaven. And one of the ideas here, and we talked about this in the sermon a little bit, is that Jesus tells us that he wants to be surrounded by those who love him in heaven, and that he is preparing a place for us so that we can be with him and be together with one another. And one of the things that Lewis does make clear here is that he's not, he's not talking about marriage because marriage doesn't happen in heaven, but what he is talking about is fellowship, a deep fellowship of people who are all worshiping Jesus together, who will be gathered together in joy. Then he talks about this whole idea of the joy that is in redeemed humanity, that when you are in heaven and sin is no more, that joy is everywhere, and the joy is something that can waken dead things to life in some way, I and mean, it's just beautiful. So that gets us to part two of chapter 12, and if we are really lucky, um, we will get all the way through this and through the first part of chapter 13. Wow. I know. So <laughs> we'll see. We'll see if that happens. So the first thing here is right after this encounter with this magnificent, beautiful woman who is such an exemplar of someone who lived a life for Jesus, we get the complete opposite with this dwarf and the tragedian. Tragedian is a um, sort of failed actor. And so these two are chained together in the story. And the lady, unbelievably, seems to have been married to this split personality creature. So here we go, the danger of a divided identity. While we spoke, the lady was steadily advancing toward us, but it was not at us she looked. Following the direction of her eyes, I turned and saw an oddly shaped phantom approaching, or rather two phantoms, a great tall ghost, horribly thin and shaky, who seemed to be leading on a chain, another ghost, no bigger than an organ grinder's monkey. The taller ghost wore a soft black hat, and he reminded me of something my memory could not quite recover. Then, when he had come within a few feet of the lady, he spread out his lean, shaky hand flat on his chest with the fingers wide apart and exclaimed in a hollow voice, at last. All at once, I realized what it was that he had put me in mind of. He was like a seedy actor of the old school. Darling, at last, said the lady. Good heavens, thought I, surely she can't. And then I noticed two things. In the first place, I noticed that the little ghost was not being led by the big one. It was the dwarfish figure that held the chain in its hand and the theatrical figure that wore the collar around its neck. 
In the second place, I noticed that the lady was looking solely at the dwarf ghost. She seemed to think it was the dwarf who had addressed her, or else she was deliberately ignoring the other. On the poor dwarf, she turned her eyes. So here we get a little window into how important repentance and forgiveness are. On the poor dwarf, she turned her eyes. Love shone not from her face only, but from all her limbs, as if it were some liquid in which she had just been bathing. Then to my dismay, she came nearer. She stooped down and kissed the dwarf. It made one shudder to see her in such close contact with that cold, damp, shrunken thing. But she did not shudder. Frank, she said, before anything else, forgive me for all I ever did wrong and for all I did not do right since the first day we met. I ask your pardon. Yeah, wow. So one of the things Lewis is getting at here that we'll unpack a little bit later is that one of the marks of spiritual maturity is an ever-increasing understanding of your own wickedness. Then the tyranny of selfish desire. He, the dwarf, he, was watching the tragedian out of the corner of his eyes. Then he gave a jerk to the chain, and it was the tragedian, not he, who answered the lady. There, there, said the tragedian. We'll say no more about it. We all make mistakes. With the words, there came over his features a ghastly contortion, which I think was meant for an indulgently playful smile. We'll say no more, he continued. It's not myself I'm thinking about. It is you. That is what has been continually on my mind all these years, the thought of you. You, here alone, breaking your heart about me. But now, said the lady to the dwarf, you can set all that aside. Never think like that again. It is all over. Her beauty brightened so that I could hardly see anything else. And under that sweet compulsion, the dwarf really looked at her for the first time. For a second, I thought he was growing more like a man. He opened his mouth. He himself was going to speak this time. But oh, the disappointment when the words came. You missed me, he croaked in a small, bleeding voice. Still, the love and courtesy flowed from her. Dear, you will understand about that very soon, she said. But today, what happened next gave me a shock. The dwarf and the tragedian spoke in unison, not to her, but to one another. You'll notice, they warned one another, she hasn't answered our question. I realized then that they were one person, or rather that both were the remains of what had once been a person. The dwarf again rattled the chain. You missed me, said the tragedian to the lady, throwing a dreadful theatrical tremor into his voice. Dear friend, said the lady, still attending exclusively to the dwarf, you may be happy about that. Forget all about it forever. And really, for a moment, I thought the dwarf was going to obey partly because the outlines of his face became a little clearer, and partly because the invitation to all joy, singing out of her whole being like a bird song on an April evening, seemed to me such that no creature could resist it. Then he hesitated, and then once more, he and his accomplice spoke in unison. 
Then we have this distinction between craving love and selfless love. I could forgive them all they've done to me, but for your miseries. Oh, don't you understand, said the lady, there are no miseries here. Do you mean to say, answered the dwarf, as if this new idea had made him quite forget the tragedian for a moment, do you mean to say you've been happy? Didn't you want me to be? But no matter, want it now, or don't think about it at all. The dwarf blinked at her. One could see an unheard of idea trying to enter his little mind. One could see even that there was for him some sweetness in it. For a second, he had almost let the chain go. Then, as if it were his lifeline, he clutched at it once more. Look here, said the tragedian, we've got to face this. He was using his manly bullying tone this time, the one for bringing women to their senses. Darling, said the lady to the dwarf, there's nothing to face. You don't want me to have been miserable for misery's sake. You only think I must have been if I loved you. But if you'll only wait, you'll see that isn't so. Love, said the tragedian, striking his forehead with his hand. Then a few notes deeper. Love, do you know the meaning of the word? How should I not, said the lady. I am in love, in love. Do you understand? Yes, now I love truly. You mean, said the tragedian, you mean you did not love me truly in the old days? Only in a poor sort of way, she answered. I have asked you to forgive me. There was a little real love in it. But what we called love down there was mostly the craving to be loved. In the main, I loved you for my own sake, because I needed you. And now, now, you need me no more? But of course not, said the lady, and her smile made me wonder how both the phantoms could refrain from crying out with joy. What needs could I have, she said, now that I have all? I am full now, not empty. I am in love himself, not lonely, strong, not weak. You shall be the same. Come and see. We shall have no need for one another now. We can begin to love truly. And then this is moving into chapter 13, the power of love and joy. I do not know that I ever saw anything more terrible than the struggle of that dwarf ghost against joy. For he had almost been overcome. Somewhere, incalculable ages ago, there must have been gleams of humor and reason in him. For one moment, while she looked at him in her love and mirth, he saw the absurdity of the tragedian. For one moment, he did not at all misunderstand her laughter. He too must once have known that no people find each other more absurd than lovers. But the light reached him, reached him against his will. This was not the meeting he had pictured. He would not accept it. Once more, he clutched at his death line, and at once the tragedian spoke. You dare to laugh at it, it stormed, to my face, and this is my reward. Very well, it is fortunate that you give yourself no concern about my fate. Otherwise, 
you might be very sorry afterwards to think that you had driven me back to hell. What? Do you think I'd stay now? Thank you. I believe I'm fairly quick at recognizing where I'm not wanted. Not needed was the exact expression, if I remember rightly. From this time on, the dwarf never spoke again, but still the lady addressed it. Dear, no one sends you back. Here is all joy. Everything bids you stay. But the dwarf was growing smaller, even while she spoke. Then, circling all the way back to the first chapter, the danger of standing on your rights. Yes, said the tragedian, on terms you might offer to a dog. I happen to have some self-respect left, and I see that my going will make no difference to you. It is nothing to you that I go back to the cold and the gloom, the lonely, lonely streets. Don't, don't, Frank, said the lady. Don't let it talk like that. But the dwarf was now so small that she had dropped on her knees to speak to it. The tragedian caught her words greedily as a dog catches a bone. Ah, you can't bear to hear it, he shouted with miserable triumph. That was always the way. You must be sheltered. Grim realities must be kept out of your sight. You, who can be happy without me, forgetting me. You don't want even to hear of my sufferings. You say, don't, don't tell you. Don't make you unhappy. Don't break in on your sheltered, self-centered little heaven. And this is the reward. She stooped lower still to speak to the dwarf, which was now a figure no bigger than a kitten, hanging on to the end of the chain with his feet off the ground. That wasn't why I said don't, she answered. I meant stop acting. It's no good. He's killing you. Let go of that chain, even now. And then using pity for manipulation. Acting, screamed the tragedian. What do you mean? The dwarf was now so small that I could not distinguish him from the chain to which he was clinging. And now for the first time, I could not be certain whether the lady was addressing him or the tragedian. Quick, she said, there's still time. Stop it, stop it at once. Stop what? Using pity, other people's pity in the wrong way. We've all done it a bit on earth, you know. Pity was meant to be a spur that drives joy to help misery, but it can be used the wrong way round. It can be used for a kind of blackmailing. Those who choose misery can hold joy up to ransom by pity. You see, I know now, even as a child, you did it. Instead of saying you were sorry, you went and sulked in the attic because you knew that sooner or later, one of your sisters would say, I can't bear to think of him sitting up there all alone crying. You used your pity to blackmail them, and they gave in in the end. And afterwards, when we were married, oh, it doesn't matter. 
if only you will stop it. And that, said the tragedian, that is all you have understood of me after all these years. I don't know what had become of the dwarf ghost by now. Perhaps it was climbing up the chain like an insect. Perhaps it was somehow absorbed into the chain. No, Frank, not here, said the lady. Listen to reason. Did you think joy was created to live always under that threat? Always defenseless against those who would rather be miserable than have their self-will crossed? For it was real misery. I know that now. You made yourself really wretched. That you can still do. And then light and joy and love must triumph over darkness. Everything here becomes more and more itself. Here is joy that cannot be shaken. Our light can swallow up your darkness, but your darkness cannot now infect our light. No, no, no. Come to us. We will not go to you. Can you really have thought that love and joy would always be at the mercy of frowns and sighs? Did you not know they were stronger than their opposites? Love? How dare you use that sacred word, said the tragedian. At the same moment, he gathered up the chain, which had now for some time been swinging uselessly at his side, and somehow disposed of it. I'm not quite sure, but I think he swallowed it. Then for the first time, it became clear that the lady saw and addressed him only. Where is Frank, she said, and who are you, sir? I never knew you. Perhaps you had better leave me, or stay if you prefer. If it would help you, and if it were possible, I would go down with you into hell. But you cannot bring hell into me. You do not love me, said the tragedian in a thin, bat-like voice, and he was now very difficult to see. I cannot love a lie, said the lady. I cannot love the thing which is not. I am in love, and out of it I will not go. There was no answer. The tragedian had vanished. The lady was alone in that woodland place, and a brown bird went hopping past her, bending with its light feet the grasses I could not bend. Well, there is a lot going on here. Uh, much that we could learn from, because a lot of these issues are still around. So, first, this whole idea of the divided identity, and we already read this section, but she sees this little dwarf and then this big projection of this seedy actor and sees that they are chained together. And you'll notice that originally, she says the dwarf is holding on to that chain like a lifeline, and that he's so terrified of anyone seeing himself and not the image that he wants to project, the mask that he wants to show to the world, that this lifeline to that projection is what keeps him going. But you'll notice by the end of the chapter, Lewis has started calling it the death line. And this is this whole idea of being a hypocrite, of having a divided identity. And those of you that remember your Greek drama uh, will remember that in the theater in Greece, in those big amphitheaters, the actors would come out and they would have these giant masks 
that they would hold in front of them. And sometimes an actor might play multiple roles, but you would know the role that he was playing by which mask he was holding up. And the Greek word for mask is hypocrisy. That's where our word hypocrite comes from. It's wearing a mask that tries to convince people that you're someone that you're not. And really what's going on in this whole chapter is a woman, Sarah Smith, trying to invite this man to lay down the mask, to just be who he is so that he can enter into joy. But he is so terrified to be his real self that he finds that very difficult. Listen to these words from Scripture. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by that wind. For that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Whenever we are double-minded, when we are trying to live in two different worlds, when we've got a foot on each side of the fence, when we're trying to project a mask rather than being ourselves, we are going to be unstable in all our ways. And then Jesus is so clear about this in so many of his teachings. But I love this one from Luke 16. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. But in the same way, you can't have two images of yourself, one that you love and one that you hate one that you try to project on people and the other that you try to keep hidden. Jesus calls us to be fully integrated, to remember that we are fearfully and wonderfully made in his image and that when we are his image bearers, we're not showing a mask. We're showing the image of God that he has placed in us. Then secondly, the priority of repentance and seeking forgiveness. One of the things that is so striking here is that this woman, Sarah Smith, is clearly a saint, that she is someone deep, deep, deep in her faith and her love of the Lord. And she meets her former, like a still husband, the guy she was married to on earth, Frank, who is both dwarf and tragedian. And Obviously, he is full of sin, and he is really messed up. But rather than lord over him how saintly she is, she immediately approaches him in humility and asks for his forgiveness as she repents. And one of the most striking verses about this in the New Testament is in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, and Jesus is talking about going to make your gift at the altar in the temple. And we don't really understand the context of that very well today, but that was a really big deal. Part of the reason that you went to the temple at all was to go and to make your gift. And it was something in this period that had been really corrupted and people were doing it to be seen. People would literally 
change their offering into the smallest denomination coin possible and bring a trumpeter with them and have the trumpeter blow the horn before they dumped all the coins into this metal receptacle. So it'd go bang, 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 bang. And people would think, oh, he's so holy. But what, what Jesus is saying is the whole emphasis on the Pharisees about all this money is just wrong, that there are things more important. So Jesus says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Notice, it's not that you have something against your brother. It's that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. And this is such a striking statement about the importance of repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation so that there is no barrier between you and the other people in your life. And then remember, Jesus, when he first comes on the scene, uh, the first words that we hear from Jesus in some of the Gospels are, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. We don't like the word, well, maybe y'all do. I don't like the word repent, because I like doing what I want to do, uh, which sometimes is wrong. In fact, most of the time. Uh, but what we're called to do is to repent, and it literally means to turn around. We often mistake and think repent means to feel some sort of vague, amorphous sorriness. That is not what repentance means. Repentance means to change your mind, to turn around, to go in the other direction. And Jesus is calling us to be people who are quick to repent. And I love this passage from St. Paul in 2 Corinthians. I rejoice, not, that, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And that could be the theme verse for this chapter. Just think about the difference between her godly grief and this tragedian's worldly grief about whether she missed him or not. And just look at the fruit of the two of those. Then the tyranny of selfish desire. We don't have any problem with selfish desire in our culture today. We are all just completely altruistic, not thinking of ourselves or what we want or any of those things, right? So this is just irrelevant. But in case maybe there's someone else that you know that struggles with this, uh, we'll, we'll just look a little bit at this. So this tragedian is all about wanting her to say, oh, I missed you so much. I've been in misery even in heaven because my love for you was so wonderful because you are the fountain source of all being. Oh, wait, that might be idolatry. And this guy wants her to have made him her idol, but she's refusing to buy into it. And, but he can't get past that. He is so convinced that she should be falling at his feet. He's like, oh, 
um, so convinced that he just, he can't get past it at all. And she tries to explain, and the, the dwarf begins to get it just a little bit, but he's so locked into this way because he's been nursing this root of bitterness for such a long time that he can't let go of it. And very much like what we see in James, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. And then from Romans, do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. And we could also put up there, the wages of sin is death. Even though she's trying to help him choose the way that leads to love and joy and fulfillment and all of that, he cannot let go of his own self-centeredness and his, I want what I want when I want it. And part of that, I want what I want when I want it, means manipulating her, but she is having none of it. So then this whole craving love versus selfless love. Now, I, I know, again, that this is not an issue for any of us at all, but there, but there are the, those people that are out there that have problems with this. Um, if you want to get an idea about love and our culture, uh, one of the things I would suggest that you do this is a little dangerous, but just Google recent songs about love and pull them up and just look at the lyrics. And I will tell you, it is all about craving love. It is all about selfish love. I want you so I can get what I want. Um, just unbelievable, you know, make no bones about it anymore. Don't even pretend to be selfless. But that's part of the reason that we have such a beautiful story to tell people. Because selfless love is the only kind that is actually fulfilling. This is part of the reason, most of y'all know, I'm somewhat, or maybe a lot, of a fanatic about the Lord of the Rings. And part of the reason for that, and part of the reason I believe that those stories tug on the hearts of so many people, including people who are not even remotely interested in the Christian faith, is that there is example after example after example of selfless, self-sacrificial love in those stories. And that is something that is so rare in our culture today that when people see it, they are drawn to it like a magnet. And remember what Jesus says in that great discourse that was part of what we um, have the lesson from this past Sunday uh, on the night before he was crucified. Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And then we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now the dwarf slash tragedian is not remotely interested in laying down his life. He claims he loves this woman so deeply, but all he wants is for her to grovel at his feet and say how wonderful he is and how she was so terrible and how 
wonderful it would be to have him with her now. But she just won't do it. She just won't do it because she has, as she keeps saying, I am now in love. And you'll notice it's often with a capital L. She is in Christ. She is in the presence of Christ. She has experienced perfect selfless love that is that life of love that wells up like a fountain in the Trinity at the center of all being. And she is in that, swimming in it, and she sees what a tawdry little thing this craving love is in comparison. And then the idea of the power of love and joy. And I, I love the way that Lewis describes this uh, as he starts this off. He says, I do not know I ever, if I ever saw anything more terrible than the struggle of that dwarf ghost against joy. For he had almost been overcome. Somewhere incalculable ages ago, there must have been gleams of humor and reason in him. For one moment, while she looked at him in her love and mirth, she saw the, he saw the absurdity of the tragedian. And this is one of those things that I think is so easy to forget in our culture. We don't think of joy as being powerful. We think of joy as being sort of a private emotion, but the fact of the matter is the scriptures teach about the power of joy and that joy when it is expressed, and I love the combination here when he talks about her joy, he says love and mirth. Mirth is joyous laughter. That those things draw this bitter, nasty, mean, psychologically disturbed, dwarf, tragedian, split personality creature, joy, love, and mirth, the combination of that gets through to him. And it's a reminder for us that we need to think about what do we express as we live our lives in this world? Are we expressing joy that's characterized by love and mirth, or do we buy into the whole complaining about everything, everything is awful, the world is going to hell, what in the world is going on with the government, what is going on with this, what's going on with that? And it's all too easy for us to just flow right into that narrative. But if we want people to be attracted to the gospel, our narrative needs to be the gospel, not what's going on in the world. And it needs to be characterized by this joy and love and mirth. And there's power in that. And the church seems to have forgotten that. Um, listen to these words from Scripture, from Psalm 16. You will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And here is really a testament to the power of joy. Let us look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, the joy that was set before him, 
endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And then there's this great verse from Song of Songs that we probably only ever hear occasionally in a wedding. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is as strong as death, jealousy as cruel as the grave. Its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. We as the church need to recover an understanding of the power of joy and love, particularly in a culture that is characterized by despair. Then the danger of standing on your rights. Now this is really tough because most of us like our rights. Um, just wait if somebody tries to cut you off, even in the Chick-fil-A drive-through line. Even when you're at Chick-fil-A and you're trying to be on your good behavior because you know it's kind of a Christian cloud there. Um, but they cut you off. Our first reaction is probably not to bless them because we want our rights. We feel like we've been done wrong and they got in front of us in the line and that is not fair. But the problem is God doesn't really care about what we think our rights are. And the more that we let go of what we think our rights are in terms of our interpersonal relationships, it will make a huge difference. And part of the problem that you see here and way back in the first chapter of this book is that when you become obsessed with your own rights, you usually become cranky and grumpy and bitter. And that is not a place that you ever want to get to. Listen to what Proverbs says. Be not wise in your own eyes. Ouch. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. That would be a good thing to put on your dashboard. <laughs> Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Let me just tell you, when the scripture says woe to something, you don't want to go there. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Well, that pretty much speaks for itself. Using pity for manipulation. Well, once again, we certainly don't do that. But we probably know some people out there that we might want to text this part to. <laughs> Thought of you at class tonight. <laughs> but it is so easy to try to milk our circumstances to get pity from people. Yeah, the poor, poor, pitiful me playing the violin. No one knows the trouble that I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus, but I'm going to tell you about it. <laughs> but what Lewis is trying to get at here is this whole idea of using pity from a manipulation is dangerous because through the process of doing this, what we actually do is we make ourselves miserable. The misery, as he says, is real. 
we convince ourselves that we are actually the most put upon people in the world and that everybody should feel sorry for us because we have it so hard. It's so hard. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, when you look at Jesus and what Jesus went through for us, nothing that we go through is worth even thinking about. So, some other scriptures, again from Proverbs. A joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit, oh, poor me, dries up the bones. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness is a big, important word. That means you cannot be moved, being steadfast. But the problem for most of us is that we would rewrite that verse. Counted all tragedy when you meet trials of various kinds and try to get out of them right away because you don't want to have your faith tested. But that's not what the scriptures teach us. We are to count in joy. We are to look through the trial as Jesus looked through because of the joy set before him, despising the shame of the cross, enduring it because he knew the joy that was on the other side of it. And then uh, this from the Psalms. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. And I want to just give a little plug here for Veggie Tales. Um, there is so much good theology in Veggie Tales, and one of, one of my favorite ones is when they are going through the Red Sea, and they get through the Red Sea, and they're out in the desert, and they're sitting there, and it's the, the cucumber and the asparagus and a couple of other vegetables, and they're around the campfire under the starry night in the desert, and they're like, this is terrible. When we were in Egypt, we had meat to eat every night. And then the other people were like, yes, we had meat. We had things to drink. It was good. And now we've been led out here. We don't have anything. It's terrible out here. Why did we ever follow that Moses guy? We should go back to Egypt. Because if we go back to Egypt, we're going to get good food again. We're going to have good food. And then the little one in the back pipes up and says, but we were in slavery. <laughs> and it's so good because it sounds just like the way we talk, you know, and we, we just, our frame of reference is just utterly wrong. All right, light and joy must triumph over darkness. There is some beautiful theology in this section. Everything here becomes more and more itself. In heaven, our journey is to be more and more reflecting the glory of God that is in us because we are made in his image. Here is joy that cannot be shaken. Remember that passage about a city whose foundations cannot be shaken because its builder is God. Our light can swallow up your darkness but your darkness cannot now infect our light. 
Love and joy and light are powerful. We need to remember that. Uh, if I were to give you homework, it would be to go read the first half of the first chapter of John's Gospel, that great prologue, and just think about what that says that Jesus accomplished in the incarnation. It is astounding. This is from that passage. In him, in Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And we talked a little bit about this Sunday in the sermon. One of the things that we miss sometimes in English is English is not as precise as Greek. And there are two words for life uh, in Greek. And in our Bible, they both get translated life. One is bios, the other is zoe. Bios is the life that means that we're alive. It's the same thing that means the palmetto tree out there is alive, the cockroach scuttling over there is alive. They all have bios. But Zoe is the life that exists within the Trinity, the eternal, spiritual, joyous, loving life that pulsates among the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Zoe is not used nearly so often in the Bible. But when Jesus comes, Zoe starts showing up. It's not bias. So in this passage, it says, in him was life, Zoe not bios, and that life, Zoe, was the light of men. And then Jesus, when he says, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly, it's not bios, it's Zoe. He wants to give us that eternal life of the Trinity and pull us up into that. It is absolutely amazing. Um, 1 Corinthians 13, this is another great passage that we hear but don't think about. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And that's what he's been illustrating in this whole chapter, that the perfect just is so much more amazing than everything we've experienced on earth. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And this verse was one that was very dear to Lewis. We were just talking about his book, Till We Have Faces, and this is where the title comes from. Um, it's that whole idea of being able to be fully known, to be fully who we are made to be, and to be able to gaze into the face of Jesus. All right, so this is a little passage from Mere Christianity about this Zoe life, um, which is just so fabulous. Uh, so Lewis uses in his chapter in Mere Christianity about the Trinity, he says, if you will not think me irreverent, 
I want to use the analogy of the Trinity as being like a dance. So he says, the whole dance or drama or pattern of this three-personal life is to be played out in each one of us. Each one of us has got to enter that pattern to take his place in that dance. And this is, you know, just imagine a big ballroom with people doing an intricate minuet or something like that. And what he's saying is you can't just stay and watch it. You have to enter into it and move with it. There's no other way to the happiness for which we were made. Good things, as well as bad, you know, are caught by a kind of infection. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. They are not a sort of prizes which God could, if he chose, just hand out to anyone. They are a great fountain of energy and beauty, spurting up at the very center of reality. If you are close to it, the spray will wet you. If you are not, you will remain dry. Once a man is united to God, how could he not live forever? Once a man is separated from God, what can he do but wither and die? And we've just seen that depicted in this chapter. And then circling back to where we were at the beginning with that song, um, let's say the words of this ancient hymn together. Come, Holy Ghost, our souls inspire, and lighten with celestial fire. Thou, the anointing spirit art, who dost thy sevenfold gifts impart, thy blessed unction from above is comfort, life, and fire of love. Enable with perpetual light the dullness of our blinded sight. Anoint and cheer our soiled face with the abundance of thy grace. Keep far our foes, give peace at home. Where thou art guide, no ill can come. Teach us to know the Father, Son, and thee of both to be but one, that through the ages all along this may be long. Praise to thy eternal merit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we give you thanks for the glories of the things that are addressed in this chapter. Lord, we pray that you would remind us of the power of your love, that perfect love that knows no equal, of the power of the joy that is in you. And Lord, remind us that we are your light bearers in the midst of a dark culture. Lord, we pray that you would inspire us and empower us that we might carry your light into this hurting world. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.